Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Hi, welcome back. Today, I have the pleasure to be interviewing Scott Winship. He is a resident scholar and the director of poverty studies at AEI, where he researches social mobility and the causes and effects of poverty. Previously, he served as the executive director of the Joint Economic Committee, where he spearheaded the Social Capital Project. After watching tons of interviews of Scott and having had the pleasure to chat with Scott one time, it is obvious that he's a great dude. After reading a ton of his articles in the recent weeks, I know that he is an incredibly clear thinker, yet I hope that I'll never be on the receiving end of one of his famous correcting the record pieces where he dissects all the reasons why what you've just written is totally incorrect. Today, we're going to be talking about his work on poverty and inequality. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Juliet. Pleasure to be here. I think you're uh, a a cool dude as well. (laughs) Um, So before we jump in, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, I guess what I would say is um, it's maybe two things that are related to each other. Um, you know, one is that you will change your views uh, over adulthood on any number uh, of things. And so sometimes I think I see uh, younger people and this would would certainly have been true of me uh, as, a, as a younger person had Twitter been around. Um, you know, they, they say things with, with a ton of confidence um, as if there's no possible way that any, you know, right-thinking person could disagree with them. Um, and, and a lot of times, you know, early in your, in your career, especially uh, early in adulthood, you just haven't been around long enough to be familiar with past debates that have happened and, and sort of to know uh, what, what people have written before. Or, you know, as you get older, you, you sort of learn how complicated a lot of things are. And so I would just encourage everybody to kind of approach things, especially in the public sphere, you know, with, uh, with a fair amount of humility. Um, because what you put on Twitter is forever, right? Or, or what you put on, uh, on any social media and um, man, I, there are lots of times where I'm just incredibly grateful that Twitter was not around uh, in the 1990s when I was in my 20s and very opinionated uh, and, and would have said a lot of things now that people could use against me <laughs> that I don't believe anymore. Um, so, so I guess that would be that would be my warning to everybody is just, you know, keep in mind that uh, that the world is is complicated. You might find it gets more complicated as you get older, you might find that you feel like you know less than you did when you were in your twenties. As you get older, rather than rather than more, what you did. I have learned to be very cautious of the internet. <laughs> it's a great, it's a gift. It's also a weapon of like destruction of your entire reputation. So, Definitely. you know, <laughs> very good advice. Thank you. Or be a frequent deleter of tweets. You know that that would be the other advice, I guess. Good advice. Let's start with poverty. I wanted to take kind of a 
big picture look at this first. In 2014, you wrote an article in Politico magazine commemorating the 50th anniversary of the War on Poverty called, Actually, We Won the War on Poverty. Um, can you tell us about the state of poverty in the United States today and how it compares to the past? Sure, absolutely. And I, I would start off by saying, you know, I don't think we should ever be satisfied with how much poverty we have, um, you know, as long as there are poor people in the U.S., we ought to care about them and we ought to care about there being fewer poor people. Um, but I, I have written quite a bit uh, along the lines of uh, that, that most people are not aware of, of just how much progress we have made over time in reducing poverty. And, um, you know, that's a there are a lot of complicated reasons for that. It ends up a lot of them end up having to do with really nerdy measurement uh, topics um, the official poverty rate that uh, that the federal government publishes um, has all sorts of shortcomings um, that make it a bad guide to how poverty has changed over time. Um, some of the big things, you know, it doesn't actually count um, a lot of our government, our biggest uh, government safety net programs um, when it considers how much income people have. It doesn't count things like food stamps or housing assistance or Medicaid and and, and medical assistance. Um, when when people get refundable tax credits, um, which is something that's in the news a lot lately, uh, those don't actually get, get counted as income. So uh, the, the best measures that I've seen suggest that if you compare, say, 1962, um, you know, which was roughly around the time the war on poverty started, a little bit, a couple of years before the war on poverty started by uh, Lyndon Johnson, um, something like 20% of the population uh, was poor by a pretty arbitrary definition back then. I mean, any any definition of poverty is kind of arbitrary, right? You're, you're, you're drawing a line, and then you're seeing how many people fall above or below that line. And then over time, you're seeing whether that number goes up or down. So this particular way of drawing the line, about 20% uh, of the population was poor in the early 1960s. Fast forward today, and that's, that's more like uh, under 5% of the population. Um, and that wow. has a lot of causes behind it. You know, I think um, economic growth is, is certainly a big part of the story. Um, I think the safety net, you know, is is part of the story as well. Um, we've expanded the safety net to take care of a lot of, of poor persons. That part of the story is kind of complicated, though, because the safety net also has these weird disincentives, you know, that, that prevent some people from working or from marrying um, or from saving so the safety net's a more complicated story, but but kind of whatever the uh, the factors, um, we've just made dramatic progress over time, and I, I tend to contrast that with the fact that we haven't made much progress over time in re in increasing upward mobility. Uh, if you start out as a poor kid, um, we 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 really do no better today um, than we did in the past in terms of being able to get to the middle class if you start out poor. Um, and so I think we've we've devoted too much energy and too much attention to how much poverty we have versus how little upward mobility we have. Uh, you just had a new study at AEI that looks at racial gaps. What did you find in that study? Yeah, so this is another area where you know lots of times you hear me say that oh things are not as bad as as you think. That's sort of a, a, a shtick of mine, I guess. You know, uh, trying to convince people that they're worried too much about certain problems, like how much money the top 1% has, for instance. Um, but inequality between blacks and whites, I think, is a problem 
that we don't pay enough attention to. Um, and it relates to the economic mobility point that I just talked about, um, and it relates to uh, to poverty as well. So uh, in this paper that I just published with um, some friends and colleagues at the Brookings Institution and my research assistant at uh, the American Enterprise Institute, for the first time, we were able to look at um, people's grandparents. So we, we take a group of people that are in their 30s today, and we're able to look back at their parents um, when, when those 30-year-olds were living at home um, growing up. And we're able to look back even further to their grandparents um, in the late 1960s. And what we looked at was um, how uh, common it is to be in the bottom fifth for three generations in a row. Um, and whether that differs between blacks and whites. And it turns out it differs a lot. Um, so, for instance, about one in five African-Americans in their 30s today is in their third generation of poverty, their third generation of being in the bottom fifth. Um, among So one in five. Among whites, it's one in 100. So these really big disparities. Um, and in some ways, like just as important, if, if you um, only look at people who are in the bottom fifth today um, and you compare blacks and whites and you think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of comparing apples and apples there because, um, you know, I'm looking at African-Americans in the bottom fifth and I'm looking at whites in the bottom fifth. And so it's sort of like the same group in terms of advantage or disadvantage. Well, it turns out that's not true at all either. Um, among blacks who are in the bottom fifth today, half of them. Uh, also have a, a parent and a grandparent who are in the bottom fifth. Um, while for whites who are currently in the bottom fifth, that's true of only about 8% of them. Um, so we just find these big, big disparities um, uh, that uh, no one had quantified before. I think people had a sense, you know, that uh, that it was probably true that uh, there's been more multi-generational poverty for blacks than for whites. But we were able to show just, just how, uh, how much... Uh, of a gap there is out there. And we think that's important because, you know, I, I think um, my co-authors and I, you know, Brookings and AEI are different think tanks. Um, one is center left and one is center right. So we wouldn't agree necessarily on on the solutions to the problem or even, you know, on, on sort of the most important causes behind the problem necessarily. But we do agree that it's, it's just an incredibly important problem um, that conservatives and liberals both should focus more attention on. People tend to like one factor explanations for why these things occur. And I personally would like that. It makes things way easier. But I've learned, especially with the podcast, that, that is usually never the case. It's way more complicated. Do we have even the beginning of a grasp on why these racial gaps are so persistent over time? I think we have a, a decent idea. Um, you know, it's always, it's pretty much impossible to um, uh, to sort of rank order different factors and say this one's definitely the most important. This one is the second most important. Um, but I think you know the the way to start the story is um, to look at the grandparents, for instance, in our study. So when we look at the grandparents, fifty um, percent of the black grandparents grandparents were in poverty in the bottom fifth, um, and that compared to only uh, less than ten percent. Um, uh, for whites. Um, so, you know, at the, at the sort of peak of the civil rights movement, we had these big, uh, black, white disparities, which were themselves rooted in, 
um, you know, 400 years of, uh, of discrimination. Um, there was uh, slavery. And then for much of the African-American population, um, they were stuck in the Deep South, um, where there was a whole system of Jim Crow um, that was designed to limit their freedoms. Um, in the North, you know, things were better, but, um, but African-Americans were still discriminated against by employers, by unions. Um, they were discriminated in housing. They were discriminated against by banks. Um, federal policy discriminated against African-Americans. So for, you know, for centuries, um, there was just a profoundly uneven playing field. And one of the outcomes of that was to concentrate African-Americans who were disproportionately poor in uh, a small number of, uh, of poor neighborhoods. And once you, once you concentrate poor people together, it's a machine for uh, preventing upward mobility because it just concentrates all of the problems that go along with poverty, whether that's uh, family instability, whether that's uh, you know, poor performing schools, whether that's crime, um, you name it. Um, if you concentrate poverty, you concentrate all of those things. So, uh, so what we find in the paper is even though part of the problem is that there was this big poverty gap among the grandparents, even since then, um, upward mobility has been less among blacks and downward mobility into poverty has been higher uh, among blacks. And, and that really, I think, relates to this history um, of discrimination that we have. Now, certainly other people would focus on um, ongoing discrimination, um, uh, which I think is also important. Um, I, I think probably if I had to bet, I would say that the historic discrimination has actually been more important and that, that if you know you could snap your fingers and get rid of discrimination tomorrow, um, you would still have these big gaps because of the of the structural conditions that we've created um, from past discrimination. In the political piece you wrote, quote, much of the data that informs the current discussion about poverty is misleading, which is no help when plotting a path forward that addresses the problems that the poor face, end quote. I'm sure this relates directly to the fact that the way that the government measures poverty is not, like, doesn't take into consideration government programs. How else does this problem present itself? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, when we when we start off with poverty numbers um, that that are incorrect um, and that make it seem like we haven't made much progress over time, um, you know that that might make you think, "Oh my goodness!" You know, we need it's time to try something uh, incredibly radical. Did I just say, "Oh my goodness"? By the way, that, that uh, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have to edit that out entirely. <laughs> I, I sound 70 years old all of a sudden. Um, but, but so you might think, oh, we, uh, you know, we've got to try something radical because all the things that we've tried before haven't worked. Um, and, and, and it's funny, there are incentives on both um, the left and the right to downplay the progress that we've made. So if you're liberal, you don't want people think, realizing that we've reduced poverty a, a whole lot because, you worry that that might erode support for uh, for for more policies to reduce poverty even more, right? You kind of want to overstate the problem and and talk as if we have a crisis, you know, where actually we may have a problem that's fairly manageable 
um, or where the solutions that would be appropriate um, would be smaller than the things that a lot of liberals want to do. If you're conservative, um, you don't want people to know that poverty has gone down a lot because it might suggest that all of the policies the government has adopted um, may, may have been successful in some ways. Um, and so lots of times you get both liberals and conservatives who don't want to admit that, that poverty has fallen. Um, but I, I think, you know, if we really care about poor people, we have to start with the, the most accurate facts that we can, um, which, you know, include uh, how many people are poor today versus in the past, who's poor versus who's not poor, um, and, uh, and, and what, what policies or what factors seem like they've been helpful or not very helpful. Um, another example, I guess, would be, you know, debates about inequality, um, where lots of times people will try to uh, overstate how much inequality has risen over time, and they'll use that to explain why poverty has remained so high. And, and you know, there you've got sort of two big mistakes, um, people exaggerating how much, how much inequality has increased and people overstating how much poverty we have. Um, and, and if we don't, if we can't sort of have, uh, an honest debate using the best facts that are out there, um, then the chances that we're going to get, you know, some really bad policy ideas thrown around, just go up quite a bit. You keep saying accurate facts, best facts, but it seems though there's also a serious difficulty in measuring wealth and having facts that can be accurate because these estimates are usually not close or if they are, they're not perfect. And then that leads to wrong conclusions. How does that lead into problems? How can, how do we measure wealth and how, how can we make it better? I guess. Yeah. So these, these debates often end up being really heated. There's a, you know, there's a big ongoing debate about poverty measurement and, um, Nobody is talking about changing the official poverty measure, really, but um, but there is a lot of discussion about how to have better poverty measures for research purposes. And people really disagree strongly uh, about different um, decisions, um, more so than I think they should. I, I think, unfortunately, lots of times people aren't able to kind of set aside their politics um, or to set aside the implications of, you know, measuring things uh, in a way that that pretty much everybody could agree, you know, would be the best way to, uh, uh, to capture something. Um, health insurance, I guess would be an example when you're measuring poverty, you know, should you, um, count the health benefits that people get either from their employer or from the federal government as income, um, almost certainly you should count it as something, right? Other, if it, if it wasn't worth anything to people, then we should just, uh, eliminate all of the, the, uh, federal healthcare programs that we have and employers should stop giving health insurance to their workers and just give them cash instead. Um, but nobody actually believes that it's worth nothing. And so that's, that's a place where everyone should agree. All right, we should value it. It's something we can disagree about how to do that, but it shouldn't be nothing. Um, on wealth, you know, wealth is even more complicated um, than some of these other things that we've been talking about. Uh, because, you know, first and foremost, I think, um, some people will want to save their income when they get it, and some people will want to spend it. Um, and so if you just look at um, inequality in wealth, you don't offhand, you don't really have a sense of whether any inequality is due to um, 
differences in whether people want to save their money or spend their money, which is just a choice that, that you know, is none of our business really, um, or whether it's because of uh, that people receive different amounts of income uh, because some people aren't as able to save as others, which is really what we care about. Um, and then beyond that, there are all, all these other tricky things. Um, you know, we count student loan, uh, the student loans that people take out for college or graduate school. We count that as debt, um, you know, as negative wealth. Um, but the reason that people take out those loans is because it's worth it to them because they're getting something from college or from graduate school um, that they expect will be worth the trade-off. Um, and, and what that is, is you can think of it either as being just a college diploma, um, or you can think of it as being like real skills that people learn in college. But whatever it is, it's, it's going to hopefully pay off down the road in higher earnings and better career opportunities. But we don't count um, that asset. If you think of human capital as being an asset, the skills that you have, we don't count that in wealth, even though we count the student loans as negative wealth. And so that has this weird consequence that as more people get college degrees, if, if, if that in part is because more people are able to take out college loans, um, people look less wealthy over time, um, even though you know, it may reflect that, that people are better off over time. It's just we don't see the, the, the human capital um, in the wealth measure. Um, another example is, uh, uh, is retirement wealth. You know, if you save privately for retirement, um, that gets counted as wealth. But of course, we have a big social security system, um, which is, um, you know, government benefits um, once you retire. And if we didn't have that at all, then a lot more people would save for retirement themselves. And that would show up as wealth. Um, but we don't count the social security benefits as wealth. So it ends up just being really difficult to, to, to get a handle on, um, which is why I tend to try to focus more on income and on poverty and on earnings instead of, uh, instead of on wealth. So then is wealth a measurement that we should discard or is it still valuable? How is it valuable? And also, how do we measure the ability that someone has to save? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I do think it's still important to, uh, to try to measure wealth well, um, uh, especially if you're, if you're sort of focused on the advantages of growing up at the very, very top, right? Um, there's not a lot of wealth transfers other than um, you know, kind of towards the high end uh, of the income scale or the wealth scale, um, because wealth is really unequally concentrated in the United States and, and in most countries, actually. Um, so it's worth knowing something about that. You know, again, with black-white inequality, there's a vast uh, gap in wealth between blacks and whites, too. And that's, and that's really important as well. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's that we should just ignore it, but it's tricky enough to think about and to measure. And most people do such um, a, a poor job at it, honestly, um, that that it's it, you just have to really read research on wealth um, with kind of a skeptical eye. Um, and, you know, it's sort of the best we can do, given that it's a it's a tough concept um, to uh, to understand. Um forget your second question because I rambled an answer to the first one. How do we measure someone's ability to save? Yes. Right. Um, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, there are some very technical economic studies that try to look at propensity to save. Um, and so, you know, if you can find 
some kind of interesting experiment um, or policy experiment that people can't anticipate. Um, so, so suddenly people end up with more money, more income than they thought they were going to get. Um, and then you look at, uh, at the extent to which people save it or don't save it. Um, that's one way to, uh, to go about it. Um, and, and we kind of did have some interesting experiments last year with all of the stimulus, um, and, and the COVID relief, uh, because so many households got these, these checks for, uh, you know, for $500 for $1,400, um, and a lot of households didn't really need them, um, especially because spending was going down anyway, because so much of the economy was closed and people were staying at home. So they weren't using as much gas and, um, they weren't eating out as much. So they were saving money that way. Um, they weren't going to, uh, you know, restaurants and movies and concerts and things like that. So a lot of people got these checks last year from, from the federal government and didn't really need them. Um, and so they saved them. And, uh, and so that, that's, that's like an example where, you know, you, you have what was almost an, a completely unanticipated increase in income. Um, and then you can look and see how many people saved. Otherwise, if you, if you don't have that aspect of it that, that's unanticipated, then it's really hard, you know, to disentangle ability to save from just your preferences for saving versus, versus spending money. Um, but, but like a lot of questions in social science, it is really hard to get at, uh, at, at propensity to save, um, just because there, there are so many confounding factors that if you don't, if you don't have some unanticipated increase in, in income or in wealth, um, it's just really hard to, to do convincingly. I see. The second part of the Politico magazine article that you wrote, you note that a lot of the decline in poverty happened in the 1990s and that they were mostly the product of welfare reforms, while more the more great society and liberal ideas of the 1960s can't really take credit for that decline. I've read some incredible numbers on that front about how people were living. I mean, before the welfare reforms, nearly nine in 10 families on welfare were workless, mm. and most of them were stuck in like long-term poverty and unwed births rose, which created a trend in what I'm forgetting the word intergenerational child poverty. Mm -hmm. Yep. Can you talk about those trends and how what the welfare reforms were and how they changed living conditions? Yeah. Well, so that's interesting um, that you're looking at a 2014 um, piece of mine, because that's actually an instance where I think I wrote a few things back then based on, you know, what the best numbers that I had at the time. But uh, but subsequently, I, I kind of came up with my own poverty estimates. So this is a good example of, you know, where you hopefully can improve uh, these measures over time and, and that that actually can change your conclusions. Um, so the one thing that I would change if I were writing that today is child poverty, um, when you use a better measure, it looks like it's been declining um, since the early 1980s. So, um, so I think in that piece, I said it didn't really start until the early 1990s. And now I would push that back by about a decade. Um, now, I, I still would stand by the point that um, the main credit for that, I don't think is, uh, is because of the expanded safety net from uh, the Great Society that Lyndon Johnson, you know, that was that was sort of the name of his policy agenda. Mm -hmm. um, he expanded all these safety net programs. 
Um, and I do think welfare reform uh, gets a lot of the credit um, during the 1990s when when the drop was the drop in poverty was very steep. Um, so uh, so yeah, take, going going back to say the early 1990s before um, welfare reform, um, a lot of families uh, at, at at who were uh, the lowest income families um, were receiving benefits from the main program the main safety net program we had at the time uh, called Aid to Families with Dependent Children, AFDC, um, which originally, way back in the 1930s, was designed mostly to help widows um, raise their kids. So uh, mostly women um, whose husbands had died, and at the time, not many women worked, and and people didn't want women to work, and so they created this program for widows um, over time, uh, as you know, our healthcare got better, and our um, and and people became healthier, um, workplaces became less dangerous, um, and as more and more women worked, um, the 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 group of single parents was much less people who had lost their partner because of death, and it was much more people who were single, um, either because they'd gotten divorced or because they had had uh, a child before getting married. And so the program became something very different. Um, and, and over time, single parenthood increased a lot. Um, you know, I, I'm not on here to, uh, uh, to, to denigrate single parents. I've been one myself <laughs> for sure. Um, and, but, you know, it, it does create more challenges in terms of escaping poverty for a lot of families. So in the, by the time of the 1990s, um, we had a lot of kids who were, who were stuck in very poor families um, growing up without both their parents, uh, and um, uh, and there were these disincentives um, to for their for their parents to uh, to work, to get married, to save. Um, so it was really a, a, a terrible system because it didn't leave people very well off, but it also gave them incentives to not better themselves as well. So in the mid nineteen nineties. And this was bipartisan at the time. Um, uh, Bill Clinton, who uh, had become president in 1992, had had run for president, um, saying that he was going to reform the welfare program. Um, uh, he and other moderate Democrats ended up joining with uh, Republicans to reform the system that we had and and to require work um, uh, of most um, uh, families that were receiving welfare benefits. Um, it put time limits on how long people could receive benefits, um, uh, both, you know, at a, for a given spell, but also over the course of their lifetimes. Um, so it made it harder to, to continue receiving uh, cash benefits without working. Um, and the other thing that we did is we passed a number of policies that uh, provided more money to people who worked um, if they were low income. Um, so we expanded uh, tax credits that went to uh, low-income working families. We provided a lot more in terms of child care benefits, um, health care benefits. The minimum wage went up. So, so it was it was this combination of making it harder not to work um, if you were poor, but also making it easier um, uh, if you did work. And that seems to be the the right combination in my view. Um, it ended up that the number of single parents who were working increased quite a bit. The number that were getting uh, welfare benefits fell by a lot. 
Um, and neither of those would be would necessarily be positive, except that poverty also felt, um, which is really the, the the key consideration there. Um, it was a way to encourage people to more to be more independent, um, which also improved their their material well being. Um, so I've argued in the past that we ought to continue to um, pursue policies like that um, that encourage work, help low income workers. And also shelter, you know, the, the, there, there are some people who just have profound personal challenges um, or who have, you know, extremely young kids. We don't want to send, you know, mothers with three-month-old babies uh, necessarily force them to go into the workforce. Um, so shelter enough people, um, but, but generally expect that people will take steps um, to become uh, self-sufficient, independent. What do you say to people who say that the problem with poverty is that we aren't spending enough money to help people though? Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a common uh, belief, I think. Um, so there, I think, you know, for, for starters, people don't understand how much money we're, we actually do spend um, on low income Americans. And it's over a trillion dollars a year at the federal level. And when you, when you throw in, uh, state spending and a small amount of local spending. It's, you know, it's, it's over $1.2 trillion, I think every year that we spend, um, on, on low income populations. Um, so we're spending quite a bit to begin with. Um, the second thing that I would say is using how much we spend as the metric for how much we're prioritizing poverty reduction is, is just a mistaken way to go about things. Um, you know, uh, I, I go back to these different trends. So we've managed to reduce the poverty rate a lot over time, in part because we do spend more today than in the past on anti-poverty policy. <clears throat> but if if spending more money and giving giving more cash to people were what was also important for expanding opportunity we would have seen upward mobility for kids who start out in the bottom going up over time. And, and we don't see that at all. Researchers are pretty much unanimous on that, that if anything, um, we do a little bit worse than we did in the past um, in terms of, uh, of poor kids being able to make it out of poverty as adults. So that says to me that it's what's important isn't so much how much we're spending, how much cash that we're getting into the hands of people at the bottom, but it's, it's, it's spending money effectively when, when we do spend it. Um, and that's an instance where I think welfare reform, um, which actually involved uh, cuts to certain programs, like we spent less on cash assistance to non-working families um, after welfare reform than we did before. Um, but even so, it ended up uh, benefiting those families because it encouraged them um, uh, to take control of their own lives. So it's it's just it's just a mistake to sort of say like well we should measure how we care about poverty and how much we're doing to reduce poverty by how much the federal government is spending. And what do you say to people who argue that the solution is a universal type program like a child allowance? Mm. So right, so that's that's a policy proposal that really does presuppose that the way that you reduce poverty is to give people more money. Um, you hear you actually hear people say this all the time, like just give people money. Um, and you know, in the short term, it's absolutely true. Like if you want if you want to reduce 
poverty, if you want to increase people's incomes, giving people money, um, de- you know, by definition, increases their income, um, that's going to reduce poverty. Um, but that's in the short term, and it's and it's only using a very narrow definition of poverty, right? If if by giving people more money um, without any requirements attached to it, for instance, giving them more money whether they work or not, um, giving them more money regardless of whether it increases the number of kids who are growing up without both of their parents, um, you can make them less poor, but uh, their ultimate outcomes might end up worse off either because they weren't exposed to a working adult um, when they were kids um, or because they missed out on all the benefits of having relationships with both of their parents. Um, You know, you can imagine that that might keep people stuck over multiple generations in neighborhoods that were bad for their own outcomes and for their kids' outcomes. Um, So it's a solution that really believes that kind of the best thing you can do for folks is just give them more money. And I, and I just think that's wrong. So, um, so instead, you know, I would uh, provide more generous benefits to low income workers um, because that helps them. And it also encourages more people to work. Um, And I I would sort of provide benefits that uh, have built in incentives um, to help parents and their kids make decisions that will promote their upward mobility. Um, so if you think of something like uh, there's a policy called baby bonds, for instance, um, which is these days more associated with Democrats than with Republicans. But the idea is that, you know, you give kids uh, a certain amount of money when they're born in a, in a savings account um, and that accumulates over time. The federal government provides, you know, more generous uh, contributions for, for lower income kids and then when they become adults, they can spend it on a limited number of things, you know, for higher ed, um, buying a home, investing in a small business. So that's a way that isn't giving it, it's a policy approach that isn't just giving money to their parents. It's it's sort of giving wealth to the children that they can then use for a limited number of purposes that will also increase their opportunities. I think that's uh, a, a better way to go about things. Um and then the other dimension that, that's really important to think about is that, you know, the, the more government spending that we have, especially when it creates more government debt, um, that ends up being a drag on economic growth. And really, in the long run, the best way to reduce poverty is to increase economic growth over time. And so we really need to be careful that our, that our uh, government policies are not reducing economic growth, um, because if, if they are, then, then you're sort of... Um, ruining the best chance in some ways to make everybody better off over time. I think definitely having a type of program where you have a restricted number of things, like the whole baby bonds idea where you have a restricted number of things you can spend this Mm. money on is better than just giving people cash because uh, I don't know. It depends. I don't know. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I haven't thought this through enough, but um. very complicated questions. But but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of even there there are even conservatives who really like the expanded child tax credit and the child allowances because they're like they, they sort of imagine oh a lot of families are going to use it to um, to then go to Catholic school for instance, um, and you know my response to them is you know, maybe uh, maybe they will. Uh, but you know, they, their, their parents may spend it, um, in ways that aren't so helpful to them. Uh, and, and that's just something I think that we need to 
think very hard about um, and not not sort of be naive that and think that everybody you know is always kind of uh, uh, that they even know how to do what's best for their kids, let alone that they are going to do what's best for their kids. A lot of families like just don't know what's best for their kids. I think okay, revised a little bit on my part, giving the children the opportunity to later be more in control of how it helps them instead mm. of just being like, here, parents spend on your children. Yep. Probably also more helpful. Okay. I have a million questions for you about inequality and we've touched on it a bit, but we don't really have time to get into it. And so <laughs> I'm hoping that in the future we can do another episode on inequality specifically. Sure. But before we conclude, I want to ask you about income mobility, which we've touched on. Um, in an AEI study that I mentioned earlier about obvious highlights in these issues for black Americans, but how the issue is broader. Um, I know you've said that we have a mobility problem in the country, but can you explain what you mean by that and how it's developed over time? Hmm. Yeah. So I, th I think, I, I, I guess I would say we have, maybe three mobility problems um, is the way I would put it. I think one is just a mobility problem that, that everybody, every country ought to, ought to think that it has, which is just that we could do better. Um, so currently, if you start in the bottom fifth today, um, you know, roughly 40%, uh, 40 to 45% who start in the bottom fifth um, end up also there as adults. Um, so a lot of people make it out, but they don't make it that far. A lot of people kind of make it into the, the next fifth of income, um, you know, which is still below uh, below the uh, the middle of the income distribution. So I think we just should be striving to have more uh, income mobility. The second problem, I think, is that we're not doing better over time, um, as I said, uh, increasing mobility. And in fact, we may be doing worse over time. And then the third problem is this big um, uh, disparity between the upward mobility rates um, of whites and of African-Americans. Uh, so for instance, uh, I did a, a study a few years ago where we found that um, if you were a white man or a white woman who started in the bottom, um, you have you know roughly like a 25 to 30% chance of being in the bottom yourself um, as an adult. But for black men and women, it's more like 50 to 55%. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's a big disparity. These are all people who started in the bottom fifth. Um, uh, but, but there's this racial gap in being able to escape the bottom fifth. So I think those are the, the three, uh, problems that I'd highlight. Some people would also say that we need to have a lot more mobility than other countries. Um, and there, I think the, the facts are a little bit more complicated than that. Um, but it is true that if you're, if you're talking about family income, it does look like we have less uh, economic mobility than in other countries. And that's a problem too. Uh, thank you so much for all of this. Um, okay. To wrap up, what is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Great question. Um, I feel like I've changed a ton, <laughs> um, uh, since I was younger. And I guess the way that I would put it is, um, you know, that, that I have left things that I've joined. So I once was Catholic. Um, you know, I'm not anymore. I'm, I'm not an especially religious person these days. I once was a Democrat. Um, 
and then <laughs> briefly after that, I was a Republican. Um, now I'm an independent. Um, so that's something that I've changed. Uh, you know, in terms of policy, you know, as much as I've talked about welfare reform uh, being a success story at the time, you know, when I was in my 20s, um, this is, goes back to my, my original answer to you. When I was in my 20s, I was convinced that welfare reform was going to be a disaster. Um, and, you know, I just was persuaded by the facts over time that, uh, that I was wrong. Um, so I think it, it goes back to sort of advice to give younger people. I, I would say, you know, it's nice to have identities that you're attached to. Um, you know, they, it's what makes us interesting in some ways, and it's what gives our lives meaning in some ways. But I think it's also you can become too attached to your identities as well. Um, and there's something to be said for, uh, for for sort of not being so strongly attached to them that, that you can't um, you can't sort of take a new perspective on something and, and sort of leave uh, you, you know, an old tribe behind, um, if, if your views have become more complicated, I guess, kind of a long winded answer, but no, it makes perfect sense. Thank you so much. And everyone read one of Scott's articles published at the dispatch called what a new report gets wrong about inequality. It's great. And can inform you for whenever we talk about inequality next time. Um, thank you so much, Scott, for being on the podcast. I had a great time and I learned so much. I had a great time too. Thanks for having me, Julia. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guest once again for their time and insight. I would also like to thank everyone who listens, subscribes, and shares the Great Antidote podcast. If you would like to be on the podcast or if you have a guest in mind, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote@thecgo.org. at the cgo.org. Bye.